Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. As you may have seen on our social media or gotten our email blast, we have some pretty big news. I have to tell you, I've been a bit nervous, excited, and scared to share this, but it feels like the right thing. And here it goes. As we approach the 100th episode of the podcast, we've decided not to release new episodes. I'm honestly not sure if this is a pause or stopping for good, but for now, we're not going to be releasing new episodes after the 100th, which is just a few away. 100 episodes feels like a huge milestone to end on, and I'm so thrilled to have had the opportunity to speak to so many amazing people and share their stories with you. To be honest, this was not an easy decision for me, but it definitely feels like the right one. This isn't the end of Made Visible and my dedication to storytelling, especially as it relates to invisible illness. It's such a huge part of my life and will continue to be. I wrote more about my decision to end the show on my blog, so if you head over to harperspiro.com backslash blog, you can read more about the story behind the podcast and how I decided to come to the end of releasing new episodes. We have some exciting things in the works though, so be sure to tune into the remaining few episodes as well as follow me on Instagram at at Harper underscore Spiro going forward for updates. You can also subscribe to get notified of news and updates from us via email in the show notes, link in my Instagram bio, or on madevisiblepodcast.com. Lots of different places to get notified and stay in the know because when the podcast is over, that doesn't mean that's the end of this. So I really mean it when I say I am beyond, beyond, beyond grateful for your support over the last two and a half years. It's been truly special to see the show come alive and help so many of you feel less isolated and alone in your own health journeys. I hope that you've learned things from me and from our guests that bring you some more inspiration into doing things for yourself and taking care of your health. So I love hearing from you guys. Definitely feel free to email hello at madevisiblepodcast.com or DM me on Instagram so that we can stay in touch. Thank you again for your support. Now, on to today's guest. Today's guest, Felicia Stingoni, is someone who refers to herself as a caring sibling to her brother who has bipolar disorder. Welcome, Felicia. Thank you so much, Harper. So happy to have you here. I know we've been talking about doing this for a while. Our story of how we met is one of my favorites. We met at a writing workshop, and the next day, you signed up for a session that I was offering at our mutual co-working space, which I didn't even know that you were a member of. And then I left that co-working space like a year later, and I walked into a new co-working space, and there you were. So it felt like <laughs> it's clear the world wants us to be friends and connected. I just, it's one of my favorites. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. 
So I'm going to connect it back to the story you just told for a moment, because the reason that you and I met was at a writing workshop that was designed to help people write about illness or being a caregiver, living with chronic illness. And I was just starting my exploration of talking about my brother, which we'll get to. So I am a brand and marketing strategist. I work with all kinds of companies. At the time that we met, I was working for a wonderful company called The Mighty, and they really were instrumental in helping me on my journey to be able to talk about my brother's illness. I also run a not-for-profit. I'm a co-founder along with a number of other amazing women, and we run a not-for-profit called Fly Female Founders, which helps female-owned, or uh, we call it women-plus-owned, small businesses. So your youngest sibling was diagnosed with pediatric bipolar disorder when he was 14. Can you talk a little bit from your perspective, what growing up with this disorder was like for him and your family? The first thing is, I think one of the reasons that we were able to recognize it so early was specifically because we did have people in our family that were struggling with bipolar disorder. And I think at the time it was called manic depression, but we now call it bipolar disorder. So it wasn't that unusual. I will say though, it took some time to get to that diagnosis. My brother was trying to refresh my memory. I think it was first diagnosed as separation um, anxiety. It was very difficult to recognize that a person so young could already be suffering from some of the symptoms of bipolar disorder. It's very unusual. I did a little research for you, Harper, and I did find out that according to the World Health Organization, bipolar disorder is the sixth leading cause of disability in the world. I mean, I had no idea how prevalent it was. I really didn't because no one talks about it uh, at all. It's unusual to begin bipolar disorder in adolescence, but it can start quite early. So I think in some ways, my parents were open to recognizing that that's what it could be. And so my brother has really lived with this his whole life. And as a result, you know, so has my whole family. I think any mental illness or mental challenge affects everyone around you. And I think it's very stigmatized. I think it's very difficult, as you know, to talk about mental illness. It's just as stigmatized today. I know it's changing amongst younger audiences. It is still very, very difficult to admit that someone you know and love has a a mental, I'm going to call it a mental challenge right now, because I hate the term disorder, but a challenge. Do you remember when he was diagnosed and the reaction that you had to this? It's interesting because in preparation for talking to you, I mean, I think it's worth your audience knowing I have never really talked about this in any way, shape or form publicly. And it's really scary. Uh, I'm sure my brother hasn't and my family hasn't. And it's not that it's a big quote unquote secret. It's just not something people talk about or it wasn't until fairly recently. I remember being unbelievably sad because I love my brother very much. I'm still super, super close to him and he's really brilliant, which is another statistic I can talk to you about. Children diagnosed with bipolar disorder tend to have an IQ that's 10 points higher than an average child at their age. So he's incredibly intelligent and creative. I just remember feeling overwhelmingly sad at his suffering 
And I also remember feeling guilty, like somehow it was my fault, which I've been trying to write about and understand because I think his separation anxiety was sparked by my leaving for college. And then his coming to visit me and leaving, and he became very sad and very depressed. What's the age difference? You're going to laugh at me, but I'm not exactly sure. I think it's about 10 years. It could be, it could be less. <laughs> you know that he was 14. So how old were you? <laughs> I'm trying to remember. If my siblings listen to this, they are going to like be hysterical laughing at me. But yeah, so I was in college and he was in, you know, just starting high school. So let's put it that way. Got it. Well, first of all, I really, truly appreciate that you have chosen this to be the first platform to share your story and his story. It really means the world to me. And as you know, we've had many conversations about this on the importance of why this show exists is about making things visible and how I spend so much of my life not doing that and now creating this platform to help other people do so and the importance of that and recognizing and respecting, you know, people's needs to stay quiet or protect themselves or protect their jobs or their families. That is totally understandable. But what made you recently start processing this in a new way through writing and through sharing? Well, I will tell you that a big part of it was really appreciating and embracing the openness that younger people have about their mental health struggles. I am so impressed with people in their 20s and 30s and younger teens sharing their stories And it just feels like the right thing to do because we can learn so much from one another and destigmatize it. So I have to admit, it's when I started working with the Mighty and I joined one of their hundreds of communities. And one of them was the bipolar, you know, mental health community. And I started reading all of these incredible essays and I learned more about these young people sharing, this is what bipolar looks like. This is what I think about. This is five things that bipolar people hate when you say. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I never talked about these things with my brother. And I thought these young people, they are destigmatizing a disease, which I mean, apparently 2.8% of people in the United States have bipolar disorder. So one of the things that I think is really unique and amazing is that as you put it, you're a form of a caregiver, which you simply call a caring sibling. Can you talk about what that phrase means to you and what it means for you to be a caring sibling for your brother? Yeah. I I distinguish between caregiver and caring sibling because I have the flexibility to step away when it becomes just too much for me to handle emotionally or have had that ability. Whereas my parents are the true caregivers. So to distinguish between the people that are there, you know, morning, noon, and night through every single crisis, I have been there when he's reached out to me or when I have had the bandwidth and the strength to be there for him. So I talk about caring sibling because I think all of my brothers and I are caring siblings, but we each care for my brother in a different way. We each provide something for him that comes from really our truth and what we can provide. So my brother and I, the little one, (laughs) 
we have spent much time over the years on the phone, texting, having exhaustive circular conversations. Um, he, in his best years, and there have been many, he's gone, you know, over a decade without any troubles at all. He has helped take care of my children. He has been a friend. He has been a friend to my children. He's very loving and very kind. And he's a very special person to me. So even at his worst, I try to remember who he is underneath the symptoms of his bipolar disorder, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. And it sounds like there's a lot of complicated, you know, components to navigating this for yourself and for your family, and especially for your brother. How has that shifted over the years as you have both gotten older? Yeah, it kind of reminds me of that movie Silver Linings Playbook, because that character is so special to me, because he is brilliant, caring, lovely, highly functional, but his parents are aging and he overwhelms them with his creativity, with his energy, with his love, you know? And so I find that my parents have always been there for him and supported my brother in his career, in his pursuit of the arts and everything that he's done. They are there. They're much older now and it's physically exhausting. It's just, he's a lot at his best. He's a lot at his worst. He's an extraordinary person. And so it's also important to know that when someone has something like bipolar disorder, well, he's explained this to me, you develop all kinds of other issues, right? Maybe you develop some narcissism. Maybe you develop some borderline personality disorder. All of these things are things that everybody lives with. But when you have bipolar disorder, I think you're not living like everyone else. You have to actually be stronger than everyone else. You have to be smarter than everyone else. You have to be tougher than everyone else. It's a lot of energy to take care of a person like that. And my brother lives on his own. He has two master's degrees. He's super smart. He's very loving. I know in his heart, he wants his own family. It's tough. It's tough to ask a spouse to, to take you on. I think if you're lucky, like my brother with my parents who love him dearly and he loves them, they have a pact. You know, the three of them are in it together. But, you know, they're approaching their 80s and I am ready to, you know, take the wand, take the baton, not the wand. I wish it was a wand and magical. <laughs> and I, I think there will be years where there is really no burden on me whatsoever. And there will be years or months or times when their shoes will be big shoes to fill. What does you being ready mean? I think it means I have to be open to understanding that it won't be like being a caring sibling where I can slip in and out. It will be a larger commitment and it might be financial. It might be emotional. It might be physical. I'm not sure what it's going to be, but it's going to be a lot of the things that my parents have done. And in some ways, I will do it differently than my parents. And that actually might be better for him. I don't know. He's also been very good to my parents. He takes them to all of their doctor's appointments. He helps them out. He runs my dad's office when he isn't there. So it's not all a one-way relationship. How do you navigate this with your family when you have your own you know, career and your own life? thinking about what this could look like down the road. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. 
Do you remember that movie, Love Actually, where Laura Linney's character has pain? My brother is nothing like that. My brother can live his own life. He has his own apartment. But there were times when I was in college and in my early 20s, when basically if my brother called, I dropped everything and I was there for him. And this lasted for years and years. And then I met my husband. And when I was first with my husband, this pattern continued. And finally, when I had my daughter, it was the first time it stopped because somebody was more important to me than him. Not that my husband, (laughs) by the way, isn't important to me, but I mean, in a way that somebody else was depending on me that I had to make a priority. And so for the years that my daughters were young, I think I insulated myself against my brother's ups and downs. And also, I would say that my brother's ups and downs became less and less extreme. And he fell into a much more, I would say, for lack of a better word, normal lifestyle, getting his degrees, getting jobs, living on his own, having girlfriends, you know. So it kind of coincided with my being the mother of younger children. And maybe in more recent years, because he's approaching middle age, And maybe it's because my children are older. I've been more tuned in again because my children who one is out of college and one is entering college don't need me the same way emotionally. So I don't know if it's that I've made more room for him or if he's just needed more from me. I don't know, but I do know that I feel like he is coming back into my life in a way that more resembles when I was younger. That's so interesting to think about of like not really knowing why that shift has happened. You know, a lot of the things that come up on the podcast is many people living with invisible illnesses, mental or physical, talk about the need to try to speak up when you want something, when you need help, when you need support, and how challenging it can be. And in this situation, what has that been like when he needs you whether you can support him or not, what that dialogue is of, you know, when you're closer and in more contact compared to other times in your life. Do you have that conversation? Yeah. I mean, we talked about me doing this and he's nervous. I'm nervous, but I, you know, I've told him I want to write this book and I want us to write it together. Of course he said to me, do you think you can write? And I'm like, I don't know. He's like, cause I can write. I was like, oh, thanks, <laughs> thanks bro. Thanks for your support. Um, he is an incredible writer. So I am going to put this out there. And some of his manic periods, he would write literally, I am not exaggerating, maybe five, six notebooks of song lyrics and poetry. He's so bright. I mean, incredible. But I think we connect on his music. We connect on his poetry. So we've always connected intellectually. And so recently he's reaching out to me, like almost like a mentor, big sister, like, what do you think about this deal? And should I do this? And did you look at that? And I need your advice on this. And how do you think I should handle it? So it's a little bit less about his illness and it's more about his, just his life, you know, like adult to adult, friend to friend, person who respects you, you know, with the mutual respect. I will say, though, we can get into some pretty circular conversations. I think that one of the reasons that we can be very close, because he's also close with my other brothers. Like I said, we each provide something different for him. You know, I've talked about this with people I'm close to, and I I don't feel 
the stigma, but I have been diagnosed as a young person with acute anxiety and then diagnosed again after 9-11 with acute anxiety. And it seems like such a vague term, right? Like you've got really, really bad anxiety. Okay, well, what does that mean? And what do I do with it? But I think that I went through something as a teenager that very easily could have been diagnosed as bipolar disorder, but really just turned out to be an adolescent depression, an adolescent struggle with my own. I think they call it now anxiety agitated depression that I think was very hormonal. um, And I think was also very finite. Um, How can I put this? It had a beginning, a middle and an end, as opposed to being a chronic state of being. That being said, I still struggle with anxiety. Like I think so many people around the world do. I think some of my anxiety is situational and I think some of it is the way I'm wired. I've been told that anxiety can be passed along generation to generation from large traumas to small traumas can trigger something that mother or father passes to child almost invisibly, speaking of invisible. But I've always been pretty open about it to close friends and talked about it. I actually don't find it stigmatizing. But I think because I freely am able to talk about my struggles with depression and anxiety, my brother feels very comfortable talking to me. It bonds you together, even though the situations are different and your experiences are different, knowing that like you've got something too. I think it's even more than that. I think it's that I know what it feels like to be really depressed. Like I really know. And until you've been there, it's hard to have a conversation about it with somebody else. So I think it is really about some of the specifics of feeling anxiety and feeling depression, not just that I've been there and I'm a comrade, but more that I am a comrade in arms, that we've fought the same demons. Mine are lesser demons and have not impacted me in the way my brothers have. I mean, I won't get into his treatments because he's had so many good years, but there's been hospitalizations. There have been all kinds of treatments that I think diminish quality of life. It doesn't mean that I would cast those treatments in a negative light because I think that they helped him, whether it's a medication or I don't know what they call ECT now, but whatever he's been through, I think it has helped him, but in, in some ways it has diminished him. You know, these medications wreak havoc on your organs, right? They wreak havoc on your thinking. I mean, you know, of all people, and so do your guests, the side effects of medications for anything are sometimes, sometimes they feel like they outnumber the good they do. Oh, absolutely. You know know that. I mean, I think I've talked about this on the show previously of starting a drug that I thought was going to be like a lifesaver and ended up having to get off of it after weeks because I was having such severe side effects from the drugs that was like absolutely not worth it that we had to come up with another answer. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from BetterHelp. That's Better H-E-L-P, an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. No matter where you are in the world, BetterHelp lets you schedule video and phone sessions with your therapist or even text them. Not only is it convenient, but it's also affordable. BetterHelp's therapists specialize in many different issues from depression, stress, anxiety, 
relationships, self-esteem, and more. I've talked with many guests about the importance of therapy, and it's something I believe everyone can benefit from. It's so valuable to be able to talk to someone with an informed outsider's perspective. With BetterHelp, you can have these conversations at your own pace, through a secure online platform, and with a counselor you love and who gets you. It's not self-help, it's BetterHelp. Made Visible listeners can get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com backslash madevisible. That's betterhelp.com slash madevisible. And now, back to the show. You've mentioned circular conversations several times. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about what that means and sort of the frequency of those? So here's the problem with the circular conversation with a person who's not in their optimal mental health, especially if they're intelligent. You get pulled down into their rabbit hole with them and you actually think you're having a productive conversation and then you realize that they are leading you to their conclusion and then you have to climb yourself back out and try to help them back out with you, help them back out of the rabbit hole. So an example would be my brother and I talk about treatments all the time. So he'll be taking something that is really working, but it's causing all kinds of side effects. And he's trying to justify to me why he needs to go off the medication. But going off a medication for anyone is a very complicated process, right? Because you have to withdraw, you know, some medications you can go off like that. Some medications you have to taper down. Some medications are dangerous for your heart. You know, so switching out medications constantly is a really big issue. So imagine a super intelligent person. I mean, he actually wrote a graduate paper on uh, pediatric bipolar disorder. And I know he would correct me for saying that wrong because it's probably got some other acronym that I'm not using. But so this guy knows as much as his doctors, and I am not exaggerating. At times, he has researched alternative treatments that his doctors haven't even really wrapped their heads around yet. So again, it's not to say he's a doctor, but he's very smart. So I can start a conversation with him that's about his not going off a certain medication for the various reasons I'll give him. And like two hours later, we are having the same conversation. Now, this is where my family intervenes because I love him and I feel a lot of guilt about abandoning him in the middle of his thought process, about not letting him have a voice. And I will stay on the phone with him for hours if my family didn't pull me away. I mean, they will often notice my patience with him. There have been other times when I haven't been in my best state of mind that he comes to me and I'm angry at him, very angry at him. And he's done nothing, but I just cannot take it on. And so I reject him and it actually helps assuage my own guilt. So it's a real roller coaster, emotional roller coaster ride. I remember when I was a young woman, I was working at Barney's New York and I was a receptionist in the marketing department. And for all of you out there who don't know what Barney's New York is, shame on you. But I (laughs) took a phone call from one of my bosses and it was his brother. And I said, oh, Mr. So-and-so, your brother's on the phone. And he said, just hang up. And I remember being, what's up? And he's like, my brother is crazy. He's bipolar. He's nuts. I don't talk to him. And I remember going in the bathroom. I'm I'm almost going to cry now because I remember going in the bathroom and crying. So this was my love actually period. So we're talking like late eighties, early nineties. And I cried and I thought, oh my God, will I ever do that to my brother? I'll never do that to my brother. 
I don't care what state of mind he is or who he is. He is not his illness. It's such a powerful statement. And I know I relate to it. And so many of my listeners and guests do as well. And I think it's such a challenging thing to acknowledge of like, you're so much more than your illness. Oh my gosh, so much more. I mean, even if he didn't have his two graduate degrees, even if he wasn't a talented artist, none of that matters. I think that helps him prove to himself that he's more than his illness, but he is such a, like an incredible person, but his illness does hold him back. There is no doubt about it. So you mentioned the writing process Mm -hmm. and that you guys are talking about writing a book and him questioning (laughs) if you have the capabilities and talent to uh, do that. What has that process been so far and where are you at with it? Right. So here's where my guilt comes in. I think to myself, this is not my story to tell, right? This is not my story to tell. But then I think, hmm. It is if I tell it from my perspective, but I need him as a collaborator because I think it would be interesting because my process is very connected to when it's okay for me to share our story, right? It's almost like I can't tell my story without him. You know, that's why so many people wait till their sibling or their parent passes to tell the story, but I don't want my brother to pass to tell the story. I want my brother to be alive for a really long time. I love that so much. Like it's such an important thing to know because I do think, especially with writing and speaking out about things, people are waiting for, you know, their loved ones to go so that you're not waiting for them to go, but waiting for the time that comes where it's like, okay, now I can publish this thing, but why not have it be a collaborative project? I love that. Yeah. Sorry. I just had to give you a shout out for that. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that, Harper. I think that for me, okay, let's just preface. I am not a writer. And I guess based on the chapter I sent him, I'm a really bad writer. <laughs> but, but I will get help and I will write this story. I, I am not writing it to be a recognized author. I am writing it to tell a story that will help, I think, people, not really the people who are suffering with bipolar disorder, but the people who love someone with bipolar disorder and maybe even appreciate them. I mean, I've heard some people talk about how they love their manias, that their manias are amazing and that they produce incredible art. And so, you know, it's hard for me to even cast bipolar disorder all in a negative light. So the writing process has been very fragmented because depending on where my brother is, I'm either really excited and full steam ahead or very hesitant. And the one thing I am sure of is that there are three pieces that I would like to write about with his help. And one is his music and the role his music has played in his mental health because I don't understand the connection. I plan to research it and learn more and speak to experts and speak to my brother, but there's something in that. And I think there have been many famous authors who have written about the neurological connections with music, music and Alzheimer's, um, music and dyslexia, you know, music and a lot of musicians end up being surgeons. So there's something there that I want to explore. Um, another piece is medication. I really think it's interesting. I don't know if you've read Moody Bitches. No, I've never heard of that. Oh my God. And you know what? 
I don't remember the author's name, so I'm going to apologize. We'll look it up and we'll include okay. it in the show. Let's do that because that's an amazing book about women and the medicalization of women's hormonal fluctuations and as a result, moods. Julie Holland is her name. Julie Holland. Julie Holland. Yes, yes. And I've heard some podcasts with her. And now she's written a book called Good Chemistry. And I want to write about how we treat uh, not all mental incapacitation. Let's just talk about bipolar disorder because I, I, I mean, I'm not going to cover the whole, <laughs> I mean, I don't have time. Plus there's that amazing book out right now about schizophrenia by the author who wrote Far From the Tree, Hidden Valley Road, which to me, I'm reading it now. It's a fascinating book because it's a kind of a historical look at schizophrenia through the story of this one family who I believe has 12 children and six of the sons have schizophrenia, which is just mind boggling to me. And I just find it fascinating. So I kind of want to approach in the chapters on medication, I kind of want to look at, you know, electric shock therapy, which we don't call it that anymore, but I don't have the PC name for it. I want to look at all of the different medications and really understand what they do. Because sometimes my brother and I discuss whether or not he should have started medication so young. Maybe he should have started extensive therapy. Maybe it could have been addressed with diet. I mean, at some point he would have had to go on medication. There is absolutely no doubt about it. But just to know what he went through and what it does to one's body and how it affects the people around him. And again, I just want it to be for him and I to together create something that's informative and interesting. And then the last section of the book, so we've got the music, we've got the medication, um, to me is memory and memories, how he has missed out on so many things because of being depressed. What does he remember? What does he not remember? How does his illness affect that? How have I remembered our relationship? Have I filled things in that weren't there? Are my memories matching up with his? Because we've already started talking about it and they don't, they don't match up. And so I've written my own narrative. And obviously he has his own narrative too. And our narratives may not match up with my parents' narrative. That's really fascinating. That is really interesting to me to read and understand or just sort of witness the different versions of a story. It's like there's, you know, two truths and then there's the facts. Yeah. It's such an interesting way of approaching it. So what advice do you have for other siblings who are newly in the position of becoming a caring sibling? What can they do to support their sibling, uh, especially who's going through mental health challenges? So I have been in the position to speak with not siblings, but the parents, you know, given my age now, um, my friends and associates and colleagues are now of an age where we have children in their late teens and early 20s, which is generally around the time that bipolar disorder shows itself, evidences itself. So I have spoken with friends who either have children who have been diagnosed or nieces and nephews. And, you know, one of the first things I always say is don't go it alone because our family did. When I look back, I think that family therapy would have been wonderful, that my parents having other friends, you know, from maybe um, a parenting group, it was such a solitary experience for them um, until they got older and people started talking about all of this. Uh, now they can very openly talk about it with their friends, but we didn't for years. And I just 
feel like they were so on their own. I highly recommend looking for groups like that, joining communities like on the mighty. And I know there are a lot of other medical communities where people can really get down to the nitty gritty of specific illnesses and how it impacts them and their family. I would read up on it. I would try to understand it. And I would also, again, go back to what we said before. Don't have a relationship with your brother or sister's illness or your child's illness. Have a relationship with them and learn about their illness. It's very difficult when you make the illness the center of attention because you find yourself letting the other person off the hook when it comes to accountability, letting the other person off the hook when it comes to certain things. And you do want to, of course, forgive them any behaviors that are being caused directly by their illness. But you also want to respect them enough to, you know, say, hey, I love you very much. I'm sorry you're going through a difficult time, but I need this from you. I need you to try to do this. I need you, you know. So I've had to put up a lot of boundaries with my brother. I've had to ask him as much as it's difficult to stop texting me sometimes or to give me space or to try to organize his thoughts before he calls me. And learning how to love that person and be patient with that person, it really helps to talk to other people and learn like coping mechanisms and strategies to go there. You mentioned the mighty several times and, you know, seeing things that come up in there and being like, wow, people are talking about this. Can you remember a moment in time that you read something, maybe from someone who identified themselves as a caring sibling or a caregiver that you felt really resonated with you? Actually, no. It's only from the young people themselves. I think the one that resonated with me the most is, there was two that really struck me. One is somebody wrote, these are the 10 things I don't want to hear from you when I'm going through depression. And I was like, wow, I wish someone had explained that to me, you know? And it's funny because I find that more people write about their depression than their mania. Um, because like I said, some people really enjoy their mania. Another woman posted something like, this is what it looks like to be depressed. And I just never, I never imagined that. And then all these young people sort of posted these pictures and, you know, so articulate, so articulate. I mean, it's so hopeful for me, but it helps other people know how you want to be treated when you can articulate that, right? So for me, it's been just so interesting to see people with bipolar disorder discussing their symptoms and how it feels and what they need from people. My brother wasn't even taught to speak that way, right? There wasn't even the language for him to speak that way. So things have really changed. I think that's the really amazing thing about the internet that we do have these platforms, these communities, obviously social media, where people are sharing these things and exposing themselves and sharing, you know, what they're going through in raw and vulnerable ways in a way that was not really accepted and normal for so, so long. And it's helping more people feel that much less alone. Absolutely. I'm so encouraged by it. You know, one hopes that there's not a lot of misinformation being shared, but it's a great, great start. And it kind of breaks my heart that it wasn't there for my brother when he was 14. I kind of wish we could do a do-over. Yeah. 
Do you think he feels that way? I think he's less aware of these things than I am. Uh, my brother, he keeps his life fairly controlled. So he's got his music, he's got his friends, he's got his work. He's a curious person, but I think he needs to really control, you know, how much he exposes himself to. I've shared it with him and I've talked to him about it, you know, and also it's interesting. I've had teenage kids, right? So, I mean, I've had young people in my life. I work with people in their twenties and their thirties, you know, I live with someone in her twenties right now, you know, so I have much more exposure to this next generation. It's fully integrated into my life. My brother doesn't. So in a weird way, it's a little overwhelming to him how open people are about all of this. Like it's, you know, that's why like I'm here willing to have this conversation with you. I'm not sure he would. And yet he approves you doing it and is like open to that. He thinks he does. <laughs> this is where I'm going to find out. I mean, I've talked to him about it a number of times. I've explained it to him. I think not through any lack of intelligence, but I just don't think he's a big podcast person. I don't think he's really wrapped his head around what I'm doing. I do know that he trusts me and he loves me and he knows I would never put him in a precarious situation of any kind. But he even said to me, I, I'm kind of half listening every time. Every time you talk to me about this, <laughs> let's keep our fingers crossed that, you know, he's not super upset. No, I don't think he will be. I mean, yeah. I, I better not get a phone call from you after I release this episode saying he listened and you got to take it down. No, a hundred percent. I will take that responsibility. I think you've prepped him enough, whether he listened or not. <laughs> well, first of all, I don't know if he'll even listen. That will be really curious. I would be honored if he's even listening right now. <laughs> as would I. Is there anything else that you did not address that you want to make sure we bring up today? Yeah, I mean, I think what I want to address, especially for all the parents and young people that are living with someone who is suffering from mental illness, not to go it alone. It is wonderful to have a community of people to discuss this with. I mean, part of the specialness of our friendship, Harper, is from the very beginning, we were able to be open about illness. It's so rare. And so it doesn't become the center of the relationship, but it becomes an important part of the relationship to connect on. That illness plays a role in your life, illness plays a role in my life, and here are the ways we deal with it. And I think that honesty and where we came together and how it gave us immediate permission to just get that out there really has connected us in a way that I wish I was connected more with friends I've known 10 years. And I, you know, you and I are like new fast friends. I think that's why I think it's because we can talk about these things openly. And I think that makes for a very special relationship. I love that you said that I have chills in my body thinking about that <laughs> concept because I never really thought about it that way. And I loop, you know, Tiffany Diba, a past guest who you know well, yes. into this conversation in the sense that she's someone that has all these friends in the breast cancer community. And it's so incredible because she has so many different dynamics with each of these people that are not just specific to them having breast cancer. And I think it's so cool that it can start from a health topic being the thing that brings you together. And then like you and I and me and Tiffany, that we have all these other topics to talk about business and writing and lifestyle and being New Yorkers and all that kind of stuff. And that it can all tie us together, even if the initial communication was around having, you know, health stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Felicia, I can't tell you how much I appreciate truly you being willing to have this conversation with me and recording it, not just us having a one-on-one conversation and for sharing your story about you and your brother. I look forward to the day that you publish your book together or alone, whichever it ends up being. (laughs) Where can people find you and all the amazing work that you do in the world? Yeah. um, For all of you women out there or uh, folks who identify as women, we are doing a series of workshops for small business owners. And you can learn more about our nonprofit at flyfemalefounders.org. Amazing. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much, Harper, for giving me this platform to share my story. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grisillo for the design.